So as Chris was and Charlie have been saying, uh, this term, we're, we're looking at the kingdom of God. And um, Chris and Alice have very kindly invited me to do three talks, one a month for the next three months. Um, all of them asking this question, or hopefully answering this question, what is the kingdom? Uh, what do we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God? And we're going to be, um, in particular, looking at um, Matthew, Matthew's gospel. So here we go. This is Matthew 4, starting at verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Oh, can we have the next slide? Thanks. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. It's a really good question. What is the kingdom of God? Uh, What is the kingdom of heaven? It's a good question because certainly in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it was Jesus' main topic. It was the subject of most of his teaching, the kingdom of God. So it's probably quite important. It's probably a good idea to uh, know what it means. And the thing is, I think quite a lot of people are confused. Um, And there's a very good reason for that. It is confusing for people like us. And right at the end, I'll, I'll come to why that is. Why is it that this thing that Jesus talked about um, is so confusing for people like us? Um, but I think today there are also some people who are crystal clear about what it means. And my aim this morning is to confuse those who are crystal clear. I want to confuse those who are crystal clear. Because I have a concern about our understanding of the kingdom of God. Um, About 10 or 15 years ago, I started hearing uh, church leaders talking about kingdom and using the word kingdom. Um, and, uh, And it just sounded like they were talking about something different from what Jesus is talking about, if you read Matthew's Gospel. Um, the, the language jarred. Um, there was something, it was like they're talking about two different things. And I think that understanding of what the kingdom means has become quite embedded in some church circles. And so what I want to do this morning is really ask questions. Um, and maybe challenge that understanding a bit. Uh, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to take some of that language and hold it up and compare it to what Jesus said and to see if you can also see that it clashes a bit. It, it seems to be talking about two different things. And hopefully by the end, we'll all be in a position where we're saying, yeah, okay then, so what does the kingdom of God mean? And then the next two talks, we'll um, look at that. Is that all right? So it's a slightly strange talk because my, aim, my main aim this morning is to cause you to doubt, 
a question, okay? Um, Normally my aim is faith, but this morning it's doubt. Um, The language that jarred. um, There was one main phrase that really nagged at me the more I heard it. And it was when people were talking about our work for social justice in the world. So our work out there for social justice, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the, for the dispossessed, when it was described as extending the kingdom. Uh, can we have the next slide? So when people said, we're extending the kingdom to talk about our work for social justice in the world. And to begin with, I wasn't sure why, because surely our work for social justice in the world is a good thing, capital G, capital T. So why did it irritate me so much when people talked about we're extending the kingdom to describe that kind of activity, that kind of work? Um, That's what I want to explore this morning. You see, the trouble is, Jesus, Jesus' main message was about the kingdom. And he repeated the same things about the kingdom again and again and again. One thing he did was he announced that the kingdom was near. So like in our reading, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. But then the verb he used wasn't go out and extend this thing. It was enter. He called on people, he invited people, he commanded people to enter this kingdom. He said, it's near, it's available, it's coming close, but your job is to enter it. Now, entering something is very different from extending something. Um, If we're extending something, then we're making it happen. We're working on it. We're building it. We're putting it into place. It's the result of our efforts. It's a change that we're making happen. It's a change we're in control of. But to enter something is to be transformed. We're the subjects of the change. We were out and we become in. It's a change that we undergo. It's a very different verb. It's a very different feeling. Now, I need to say straight away, I need to clarify, I am not criticizing our work for social justice in the world. That is a good thing. My biggest concern about delivering this talk this morning is that you're going to hear me say, you need to stop that stuff and cut it out. That's really what I'm not saying. Um, one of the reasons that we love Hope Chapel is because it has a particular passion for that stuff. You know, if you're new to the church and you're wondering what these boats were that Chris was talking about, these are, this is a way of describing our main, uh, way of reaching out to the poor, the marginalized, the dispossessed in order to serve them, in order to do good works in their lives. And that's all good. And I want to encourage it and support it. All I'm saying is that kingdom 
When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about a different thing. And the trouble is they are connected. There is a connection between the kingdom of God and the way the church works in the world. But unless you can separate them and understand what they each mean individually, you won't understand that connection between them. So that's my aim this morning. Uh, let me let me kind of sharpen the question by uh, talking about my wife. Uh, Emma works as a debt counsellor. And she has worked for three organisations as a debt counsellor um, over the last few years. First of all, she worked for an organisation called Christians Against Poverty. Now, Christians Against Poverty uh, is almost entirely, I think, Christian employees. Um, they're very public about the fact that they are Christians doing this. They refuse uh, public money and rely entirely on, um, on contri- donations and contributions to support the work. And a big part of their thing is they preach the gospel while they do the debt counseling. They see it as an evangelistic thing. So she worked for them for a while. Then she moved on to the Citizens Advice Bureau, which is the other end of the scale. You know, it is an entirely secular organization relying almost entirely on public funding. There is no hint of any kind of faith base to the work that they do. It's just about debt counseling. And then she moved again recently. She finds it hard to, you know, settle in a role. Um, <laughs> uh, that's not true. Uh, but she now works for, for a, uh, an, a charity called Crosslight, which is kind of halfway between. They're about half Christian employees, half non-Christian employees. They, they uh, operate out of churches, but there's no kind of Christian message in their debt, their debt counseling. Now, my question is, how much of each of those three is kingdom work, is kingdom mission? Is it the work itself that makes it kingdom, if it's kingdom? Or is it the people who are doing it and and their relationship with Jesus? Is it some mysterious combination of the two? Is Christians Against Poverty 100% kingdom and Citizens Advice not kingdom at all? How does it work? Now, the right answer to all of those questions is, A, what are you talking about? It's the question that's wrong. It's like asking, if you see someone mowing the lawn, are they British? Well, yeah, but it doesn't work like that. It just doesn't work. It's it's called a category error. You're treating kingdom as though it's one category of thing when it's actually a different category of thing. Next page. You see, equating extending the kingdom of God with working for social justice, um, it raises all sorts of difficult issues. One is... It seems to imply that the only people who are keen on justice in the world are Christians. That we're the only ones, you know, we're the only ones playing the game. And that's simply not true. Everyone wants social justice. 
And many, many people are working towards it. Many different people from all kinds of different faiths and none. Um, you know, the, the Communist Party wants economic justice. NATO is working for peace. Um, wanting justice is the ticket that gets you into the game. But it's once you're in the game, it's then that the arguments start. And the arguments are all about how. They aren't about the end that you're trying to achieve. The arguments are all about how are we going to do this. There are arguments like, well, how do you define justice? What's your version of justice? You know, how much is it about punishment and how much is it about mercy? There are questions like, what's the route to it? What's the best way to spend your resources? In many ways, the biggest question is, who's going to deliver it? Who do you trust to deliver this justice? Who do you have faith in, in other words, to deliver this justice, to save the world? The Romans, the Roman Empire, declared that the Roman Empire had a gospel. Same word. It said it announced the good news, the gospel, that Caesar Augustus was savior of the world. I'm not making this up. This, this has been found on an inscription. Caesar Augustus is savior of the world because his rule has brought peace and justice. And it was true. Kind of. You know, his justice looked like crucifixion. And his peace looked like utter subjugation of any, any rival. But he had, you know, it got the job done. It brought peace and justice of a sort. But the thing is this, I noticed that whether you're a communist, whether you're NATO, whether you're the Roman Empire, you may have very different routes to um, making the world a better place, but you use very similar tools. In some ways, they're, 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 playing, they're playing the same game with the same tools. It's all about money. It's all about political power. And it's all about popular support. If you want to change the world, that's what you need. And whether you're NATO, whether you're the Communist Party, whether you're the Roman Empire, those are the tools of the trade. For pretty much every reign and rule throughout human history. Because those are the tools of human kingdoms. What I notice is that Jesus' how, Jesus' how you go about this, is kind of the reverse. His how is very, very different. Uh, Charlie was talking about the kind of people who were drawn to him. You know, if you want to make a difference in the world, you don't go to Galilee and you don't talk to fishermen. You go to Jerusalem. You go to where the money and the power and the resources are. You, you try and mingle with the movers and shakers because that's how you get stuff done in the world. That's how you fix the world. Jesus told all these little stories and most of them begin with, 
The kingdom of God is like. He described what these things were like. He described what the kingdom is like, the kingdom's values and its character. And it's startling how different it sounds from most human efforts to change the world, which are about building popular support, attracting money, using political power. The kingdom of God is like slow and small and hidden and even secret. It's the kind of thing that's hidden in a field and most people walk past. They don't even know it's going on. And it grows, but it grows organically. It just kind of spreads. It's like it has a life of its own. But most human efforts to transform the world start big, have a life, and then dwindle and finish in disappointment. Jesus described a kingdom which starts tiny but is everlasting and keeps on growing. Most of all, God's kingdom has a ruler who had more power and more resources than all the kingdoms of the world put together, but gave them up, surrendered them entirely in order to become a servant, and calls on his followers to to do the same. So I'm not, I'm, I'm saying that the kingdom of God is not working for social justice in the world. But I'm saying when you see work for social justice in the world that has the character and the style and the nature that Jesus described and modeled when he talked about the kingdom, it's a clue that the people doing it are maybe people who have entered the kingdom. If that makes sense. But they're two separate things. They're two categories of thing. Some of you are looking confused. So it's working. My second critique of this idea that the king, extending the kingdom is working for social justice in the world. Um, is that it places the focus on us. We're the center. We're where the action is. It's all about us. In In many ways, it's a kingdom that doesn't need a king. It's a king. If it's about our work in the world for social justice... Then does this kingdom need a king? Thank you, Becca. <laughs> it's funny when uh, there was the conversation about the ratio of children to adults earlier on, and uh, Alice said it's one point five to one. My first reaction was, "Time for a cull." Only joking. (laughs) Shall I carry on? Okay, here we go. The thing is, a lot of, a lot of this talk about kingdom leaves Jesus' role 
as ruler of the kingdom, quite fuzzy and quite undefined. It sounds like a kingdom without a king. Here's my second example of the language. Uh, Next slide, please. We're partnering with God to extend the kingdom. Has anyone heard that? We're partnering with God to extend the kingdom. Where does Jesus in Matthew's gospel talk about partnering with God? It's... It's a vague thing that raises far more questions than it answers. What's the nature of this partnership? You know, what role do the different partners play? The question I'm always tempted to ask is, who's the senior partner in this partnership if we're partnering with God? And I, I think the idea is, the suggestion behind language like this is, We're all on the same side. We're working for social justice. God wants social justice. So if we, if we carry on doing our stuff, then he'll join in. He'll do his bit. We're not quite sure what he does, but working in the background somewhere, he's probably doing his bit to make it happen while we focus on our bit. I think that's the assumption. We're partnering with God because we're all on the same side, because we're working for social justice, which is something he wants. We're not all on the same side. Jesus' command to enter his kingdom sets up a division. You either enter or you don't. It challenges us to make a decision. Um... How do you get into this kingdom? Well, there's a gate. And it's a narrow gate. And the gate has a name. And the name is Jesus. And you're either in or you're out. It's either or. The thing is, what partnership language kind of glosses over and makes vague... Jesus makes crystal clear, and he makes central. It's the key question as far as Jesus is concerned. He describes this partnership, and the partnership is one of king-servant. That's the offer that's on the table. Are you willing to serve? Are you willing to follow? If you are, it gets you in. That's the central question. Announcing that the kingdom is near and inviting people to enter is exactly the same as saying, Jesus is king, will you follow him? But isn't that terribly divisive and dangerous? Yes, exactly. And that's the point. It is definitely divisive. It divides utterly. And it's potentially dangerous. Why did the Romans execute Jesus? It wasn't because he went around preaching love. That stuff doesn't get you killed. It was because he announced a kingdom. That's the point. Um, We had lunch with Charlie uh, this week. 
And we were talking about kingdom because he's talking about it this morning and I'm talking about it this morning. Um, and he asked me a really good question, which is, what's the best example of the kingdom of God you've seen this week? And my answer was something that happened almost 2,000 years ago, which I've been reading about this week. Um, and it's about this guy, uh, Polycarp of Smyrna, um, who was Bishop of Smyrna uh, in the second century. And he was martyred by the Romans in 156 AD. Do you know why he was martyred? Because he refused to say, Caesar is Lord. Three little words. Come on. Come on, Polycarp. Say the words. doesn't matter. He utterly refused. You may notice that he's on fire. (laughs) Yeah, those are flames that he's standing in because he refused to say Caesar is Lord. So that's half of why I think it's kingdom because he was utterly, utterly Jesus' servant. He recognized no other Lord and that gets him into the kingdom. But do you know what he did when the Roman soldiers turned up to martyr him, to put him to death? Have a guess. He cooked them a meal. He cooked them a meal. Because it's not just about working for justice in the world. It's about the way we do it. And in a funny way, when it gets dangerous and when it gets divisive, that's when we see the kingdom the clearest. That's when it becomes realist, I would suggest. Uh, Here's my third critique. Um, If extending the kingdom is working for social justice in the world, where can we expect to see it happen? There's a clue in the question. It's about what happens out there. It's about what happens out there. That's where we would expect to see it, if that's our understanding of kingdom stuff. And it, time and again, you hear this language which sets up a division between kingdom and church. It's either out there or it's in here. You're either doing kingdom stuff, which is out there, changing the world, exciting, fun, Or it's in here, in church, not changing anything, a bit dull, probably uncool. And I think that's what this use of the word kingdom sets up, this contradiction between kingdom and church. But if the people who... If the people who enter the kingdom are those who leave their nets... (laughs) Bye. If the people who enter are those who leave their nets and follow Jesus, 
if it's about the followers of Jesus, where would you expect to see the kingdom happening the most? Isn't it in here? Now, I'm not saying the kingdom is identical to the church. I don't think, I think they're two separate things, but I think they're overlapping concepts. There's a a relationship between kingdom and church. And it really winds me up that the thing, the one of the things that I think makes it immeasurably harder to see the kingdom at work among Jesus' followers, in the communities of Jesus' followers, is this idea that the kingdom is out there and not in here. If we have that mindset, then it'll probably blind us to the kingdom. Now, a reminder. I am not against working for social justice in the world. I think it's a good thing. But it's not the kingdom. And if we want to understand the relationship between the two, then we need to understand what the kingdom is. Now, I hope, now I reckon most of you are looking a bit confused. So, you're in the right place. Uh, Final slide, please. Oh, no, sorry, next one. What is the kingdom of God? Well, that's what we're going to be moving on to next time. But here's a little Netflix teaser. Um, What I notice is that when... Christians in our society talk about the kingdom. People look a bit blank. People look a bit confused. But when Jesus walked around towns in Galilee 2,000 years ago and announced that the kingdom of God was near, his message was electric. Uh, Synagogues, which were designed for 50 people, had crowds of 500 just to hear him talk about this kingdom that had come near. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And it was something they'd been longing to hear. It was the message they were desperate to hear. And that's why there was so much excitement. But the reason they knew what he meant... The reason it meant so much to them was because Jesus' message was like the penultimate chapter in a long saga. And they knew the story up to that point. They knew it's the story of God and his people. But it's the story of a particular God and a particular people. And everything that happens in that saga up to that point, which leaves them desperate for the message that the kingdom of God has come near. But in order to really understand what the kingdom of God means, we need to know the story up to that point. The story of God as king and his people and their relationship up to that point. And where they'd been left hanging at that point. For it to mean as much to us as it meant to them then. It's fundamentally a Jewish story. 
And the funny thing is, when Jesus came around and he started announcing the kingdom of God, they knew exactly what it meant, and it meant everything to them. And then he talked about the kingdom of God and taught them about it. And everything he said and did completely subverted all those expectations. But we need to go on that same journey with them. We need to sit in their shoes with their history, their understanding of what kingdom means, and then allow him to say how he's changing it. But that's for next time.